Hello and a very warm welcome back to the Writers Podcast. It's been a while. The perceptive and loyal among you might have noticed I'm not Neil Taylor or Anelia Varela. My name's Nick Padmore and today I'm joined by Professor Jenny Romanek, Associate Director of the Ehrenberg Bass Institute for Marketing Science and Rachel Eyre, Head of Marketing Propositions at Sainsbury's. And for our listeners abroad, Sainsbury's is a big supermarket brand. Is that fair, Rachel, calling it a big supermarket brand? I hope so. (laughs) Okay, great. Um, We'll be talking about the mysterious beast that is distinctiveness, approaching it from both the theoretical side, that's you, Jenny, and the practical side, which is Rachel. So, Jenny, I want to start with you. I just want to ask you about the Ehrenberg Bass Institute. So what does it do and, and why does it exist? Well, the Ehrenberg Bass Institute is the... Well, we would call it the home of evidence-based marketing. Um, we are, Our mission is to discover stuff about marketing and share that with the world. So we're an academic research institute. We're attached to the University of South Australia, um, but we're predominantly funded by corporations around the world who really want to get to the heart of how marketing works, recognising it's a relatively young discipline and we've still got a lot to learn. Right. So it's about bringing a bit of rigour to what perhaps in the past hasn't been approached with a rigorous kind of mindset. Is that right? That's a very British way of putting it. I'd say <laughs> a lot of rigour, um, if I, I hope, um, in that. But yeah, getting some science and some evidence around the decisions that we make. And a few publications have come out of the Institute in recent years, I think possibly most notably How Brands Grow um, and How Gra- How Brands Grow 2, the sequel. Um, and those seem to have quite a big impact on the branding world. Is that did you did you expect that? Not really. Um, we we actually did it because we have um, advisory boards that are our corporate sponsors, and this was one of the things that they brought up at an advisory board meeting and said we want something physical to be able to hand to our CEOs, um, other people that explain why we're doing what we're doing. And so that's when Byron set about the task of writing the first book. Um, but yeah, it definitely did, um, has struck a nerve with the marketing community and we're really grateful for the impact that it's had. And one of the nerves it has struck, I suppose, was the nerve of Sainsbury's. Um, so Rachel, when did you, how did you first come across How Brands Grow or the, or the Institute? Yeah, I was very fortunate to uh, join Sainsbury's in the summer of 2015 when I arrived and I think everybody had just swallowed How Brands Grow and was... Everyone was talking about the amazing and shocking things they'd read in there. So, Jenny, uh, you're grateful for the impact it's had. We are very grateful to you as well for producing it. I think we um, really took a step back and went back to the basics of the brand and our marketing strategy and our marketing approach and really built up from scratch and challenged ourselves to think long and hard about the things that we were doing and whether they were appropriate or not. And what, what sort of things would you say might you have been doing before before the book, BB, uh, and and what sort of things are you doing now? What's What's been the biggest difference? There's been quite a few areas, but I think the, the biggest one, the sort of lowest hanging fruit, and the one that we've made the most progress on was around the fundamentals of our brand identity, as, as I would term it. So uh, a part of the book talks about the need for distinctive assets, so uh, things to do with your brand that are instantaneously recognisable and attributable back to your brand. And we would have assumed as a business who's almost 150 years old, uh, who has shops across every high street or community in the in the country, and who thought we had a good tight hold on our brand identity, we would have expected to have a, our fair share of these distinctive assets. Uh, we undertook a very big and rigorous and scientific piece of work to actually put a lot of the things that we do, elements of our 
language, our fonts, our logo, our color palette, so on and so forth, even some of the properties that we look after, the partners we sponsor, etc. And actually, it turned out we didn't have very many at all. We had one really strong distinctive asset, and it was the color orange. And given it's in the context of the grocery market, I would have been very disappointed if we hadn't struck gold on orange. But that was a bit of a wake-up call for us, I think. Uh, and I have, as part of my remit at Sainsbury's, setting the identity for the brand, uh, building the tools that help people to deliver on that identity and then managing the execution of it and the adherence to that brand identity. So other people would call that the brand police, I suppose. And we really professionalised that as a function. We, we stepped back, we looked at a simplified suite of assets. We had proliferated over time and we became more uh, directive and clear in what needed to be used in as many possible scenarios um, as available and then we govern that much more tightly and we are thrilled to say we recently did the second wave of testing and we have made significant progress in a number of areas. So that sounds quite simple, it's just an evolved brand identity but in terms of making every pound that we spend on media more effective in terms of customers recognising the communication as coming from Sainsbury's, therefore building that mental availability, another key tenet of how brands grow, um, it's really working for us. So I'm just aware there's a, there's some terminology here, uh, there's some specialist terminology. So Jenny, can you explain to us some of these words that are coming out? So distinctive assets, mental availability, uh, can you just give us the kind of beginner's guide? Sure. Um, well, distinctive assets are essentially the non-brand name elements that trigger the brand amongst category buyers. Um, so anything that's not the brand name, essentially, and there can be anything sensorial. So um, in marketing, we tend to use more the visual and the audio, but they can also be sense, touch and taste as well um, in terms of distinctive assets for the brand. It's one of the the joys and the challenges of distinctive assets is there is a lot of scope for what they could be um, and getting down to what you should have is usually the big challenge um, for marketers. Mental availability is one of the key theoretical platforms of what we believe branding strategy is important. So there's mental availability and physical availability. Mental availability is about being easily thought of in buying situations and physical availability is about being easy to buy. So um, those two things go hand in hand and we believe they're the key tenets of um, branding theory of, of what marketers should focus on. And when you say distinctive assets trigger, was it trigger the brand? What do you mean by that? Yeah means that when you see it, that's the thought that comes into your brain. It's an automatic process. It's not even something you have to think, oh, I see orange. I wonder what supermarkets I would think of with that. It's just you see orange and you think Sainsbury's. So that's that's it's it becomes that automatic trigger that makes that branding process easier. And Rachel was quite correct in this is one of the big strengths of distinctive assets is they help you get the most out of all the other media things you do because they make... Consumers work less hard at identifying the brand. And, you know, it's one of the biggest challenges that marketers have nowadays is making sure that at least at minimum the brand is out there. Distinctive assets help you with that. So uh, at Sainsbury's, we want to be um, at the top of the mental shopping list in as many buying occasions as possible for our customers. And a buying occasion could be something like... Um, my son fell over in the playground at school today and ripped... Uh, in the knee of his trousers, I desperately need some new trousers for school tomorrow. I'm going to go to Sainsbury's to get them. The buying occasion is the need for new trousers. Or it could be, 
I am throwing a dinner party this evening and I got everything delivered. I'm totally prepped. It's all in the oven, ready to go. Oh my goodness, I forgot the wine. We can't have a dinner party without wine. I'm going to go to Sainsbury's and buy that wine. So it's us being almost by default through an, an automated process, as Jenny says, rather than a conscious deliberation. Sainsbury's is almost the only option that comes to our customers' minds in those buying occasions. And are there any examples of other brands that do this really, really well? I see examples of distinctive assets that are particularly strong. And in How Brands Grow Part 2, we did a, um, a global study where we looked at um, four different countries and looked at a range of assets across categories in there. And, you know, some of the m- most well-known ones naturally came out strong there. So the Apple logo is one that's a good example. Um, Nike and the swoosh came out Um Pepsi actually performed very well, whereas you take a brand like KFC, it did depend on the market in which we were talking about. But I don't want people to have the impression that it's only big brands because what we find, interestingly enough, is that sometimes smaller brands have very strong distinctive assets because while big brands have the money and you know the voice to be able to get out there more often, they also are somewhat prone to a lot of people tinkering at them and lacking in the consistency needed to build a strong distinctive asset. And so a small brand that is consistent and persistent in its distinctive asset building can outgun a big brand. Um, Although most of the examples we talk about tend to be the big brands because they're the ones that everybody tends to see more. And how about you, Rachel? Any, Any thoughts on that one? I think for the UK market, I would probably pick Compare the Market as a good example. So Compare the Market being a price comparison uh, website, and uh, it's a really ubiquitous vanilla marketplace. There are several players doing the same thing. So there's no distinctiveness, if you like, in terms of the product offer. But through the uh, introduction of the Meerkat campaign and the consistent use of this distinctive asset of the Meerkat characters themselves um, and linking that back to the brand name, compare the market, they have been able to really uh, assert their authority, I think, and establish themselves very quickly as a major player in a cluttered and, as I say, relatively vanilla marketplace. It was a couple of creatives over a beer at the pub who noticed that if you said market with a Russian accent, it sounds like meerkat. And so they developed Alexander Orlov out of that discussion. The, The other thing I would say in reinforcing Jenny's earlier point is they've stuck with it. And mm-hmm. mar- as marketeers, uh, first of all, we change jobs very frequently and it can be very tempting to come in somewhere new and want to shake things up. And actually, they've done a fantastic job of recognising a strength and executing it over and over again. And it works. So Sainsbury's isn't about to drop orange. Not that I know of. Good. Um, and so we talked a bit about consistency there. That seemed to be a recurring theme, you know, you know, the, the idea once you've got these assets, keep using them. And that's the way to make them distinctive. Are there any other top tips you've got for building a distinctive brand? Yes, I would say um, actually navel gaze for a bit. So for me, being distinctive and building a distinctive brand is about knowing what makes you recognisably you. And yes, we've talked about that from an assets and a visual identity or sensorial identity perspective, but knowing what makes you you in the context of your category and your marketplace and focusing on making the most of that rather than being distracted by what everyone else is doing and trying to do something different. I'm a firm believer and it's only worthwhile differentiating if the point of difference is a point of difference that customers will value and respond to. 
So I think know what your strengths are, know what your customers expect of you, play to the category norms where they matter, but really dial up those elements that are unique to you or where you outperform your, your peer group. So that would be number one for me. Second would be, you touched on it, but consistency, almost to the point of being boring. If I actually get called the brand police at work now, I probably at this moment would take that as a high five moment <laughs> because that means we are saying the same things over and over again and we are looking and sounding and feeling the same as a brand throughout the total brand experience. That's my aspiration. Yes, you can start with how your advertising looks, but it's actually much broader and deeper than that. And uh, I really want our brand, the fundamentals of our brand to be an organizing thought for Sainsbury's as a business, not just something that marketeers think about. And finally, I think uh, you kind of a cliche, but you've got to walk the walk and not just talk the talk. So try and be distinctive in what you do and give your customers reasons to choose you in as many of those buying occasions as possible, reasons over and above anybody else that could be on their mental shopping list. And whether that's getting them to choose you for a very, very specific buying occasion or generally for, in my case, for your weekly shop, doesn't matter, but focus on having distinctive things to talk about and not just talking about them in a distinctive way. Do people still do a weekly shop? Some people do still do a weekly shop. <laughs> okay. And and Jenny, same question to you. What would be your top tips? Well, um, in the um, book Building Distinctive Assets, um, I start out actually with the seven sins of brand identity. Um, and so to sort of wrap it up, I finish up with the four commandments of brand identity. And those are um, really to, first of all, choose well. Um, don't make what is a difficult task of building up a distinctive assets even harder by selecting things that you're already behind on that either have very strong meanings that are not helpful for the brand or um, competitors already have some traction in. Then you need to prioritise. You want to really focus your efforts in building distinctive assets. Having a scattergun approach of trying to do lots of things at the same time is, is not a way to be successful in building up a strong distinctive asset. The third thing then is execution, and execution matters a lot. Um, just because you use something doesn't mean consumers will notice it and process it as linked to the brand. And we can learn a lot from memory theory here of, of how we process and code information to understand how we um, can more rapidly and strongly link the brands to assets. Um, and finally, resist change. Um, you know, I, I have some interesting discussions with the designers who kind of want to keep updating, refreshing and things. I think as the brand police, as um, Rachel put it, the onus is on them to prove how it will be helpful rather than the assumption that change is good for the change of it. Um, change is very, change usually at at best is, an, is a no net loss and usually it results in a decline. So we really need to make sure that any particular change that's desired has a really good business case behind it, not just for the short term, but for the long term as well. What sort of a decline do you mean there? Sales. Yeah. Okay. I mean, the, 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 there's, I mean, there's, there's a few very well publicised um, examples like the Tropicana example, where they changed um, key element on the pack and, you know, publicly recorded a 20 percentage point, uh, 20 percent lost in sales in about six weeks, I think it was. You know, really rapid decline because they took off the key thing that people were using to recognise the brand on shelf. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, behind the scenes, I, there's a lot of stories of those. And you know, basically, you know, people change with the idea they're doing good, but rarely is the net outcome financially sensible, financially rewarding for them. Okay, and can language be distinctive? So, Jenny, we'll go to you first for the theoretical side of this. What sort mm -hmm. of ways can a brand use language to stand out? Oh, language can definitely be distinctive. Um, we, you know, taglines, slogans, um, in particular, are ways in which we use language to create distinctive assets. However, um, we often don't stick with them long enough to keep them. If anything, we churn through tagline. I think people get confused with a message statement versus a distinctive asset and try to meld those two together. And so if they, they do that when they want to change the message, they then have to change the tagline slogan versus it being a branding device that is consistent over time. Um, but also, you know, you need the right ingredients. And, and we, as in the tagline, we have a chapter on word-based assets. And in some analysis we did looking at the factors that help a tagline be stronger or more unique, so more famous or more unique, um, we found um, things like um, length didn't matter so much. Um, so there's always been this wisdom that you need shorter is good. What we found more is it's it's not what you say, it's how you say it. So having something like a rhythmic device or a pattern to it, some way that made it more easily roll off the tongue, um, helped it more than necessarily having to be short. But also using an unusual word in there, a rare word, helped a tagline be a stronger distinctive asset. Um, as an example, um, in the US, um, there's an insurance company called Allstate who have mayhem as a word in one of their taglines, which, you know, isn't a word that we come across very often. So using rare words like that can help increase particularly the uniqueness of a tagline because, you know, they're a bit unusual. Why is that? Why is it that the unusual words make for a distinctive tagline? Um, because they get processed um, distinctly in our... our um, our brain more easily attached to something and um, we actually found the converse if you have a tagline where you tend to use the category in there so um you're you're a running shoe and you say you know run with the best um what you find there is you actually get lower uniqueness, statistically lower uniqueness, because they get it gets more processed generically with the category rather than specifically with the brand. Whereas when you have a word like mayhem in there that is an unusual word, it's much easier for someone to associate that specifically with a brand in their brain rather than generically with the category. Okay, so use unusual words and you said mm -hmm. make it run off the tongue easier. So what, what would yeah, be your tips yeah. for that? Yeah, well, use it using some form of um, additional acoustic devices. If when it's said, it's said with um, either a specific tone, then that helped. And it actually helped more than necessarily said having a short um, tagline. Because um, a lot of research in the past has said that short is important for a tagline. But it doesn't help you create something that can be distinctly linked to a brand if you only have a few words. So you can mitigate that by having one of those words at least being very 
unusual, not something that comes across in everyday language. So that just triggers that um, uniqueness in people's minds. And the thing that's going in my head is is obviously Nike's Just Do It, like which which mm-hmm. doesn't do any of those things, but uh, there are mm-hmm. always exceptions. What 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 do you think it yeah. is that about that that's made it so successful? They've just done it continually. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they they you know it is something that's been ubiquitous in there. So yeah, if you've got the consistency um, and things, you can overcome these 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 sort of guidelines are things that help you so if you're starting with a tagline you know you've got three taglines you're choosing between now and they're all similar um but one of them has a rare word that just gives you that little bit of an advantage in the long term that doesn't mean the others won't necessarily work unless there's you know something wrong with them like said competitor associations which are hard to overcome but these these things can help you just you know, when you're deciding between, make smarter decisions in the initial choices that you make. And and Rachel, how about you? What's the, from your more practical point of view, what's the way to make language distinctive? So I'll take it in two bits, if that's okay. On taglines and, and the Just Do It example you just gave, I totally agree with uh, Jenny, tenure and consistency and longevity is key, but also it makes sense. And it makes sense in and of itself to, to consumers and to people, but also in the context of Nike as a brand and the product proposition and so on and so forth. Some don't make any sense. There's almost like a, a fail in the human being test sometimes before these things get signed off and published. In terms of language more broadly, can it be a distinctive asset in the context of kind of tone of voice and the way that a brand communicates be distinctive? I think that's really hard. Uh, I think it's really hard to measure. It's very hard to measure, to put a brand's language in front of somebody and ask them to recognize and correctly attribute it back to a brand because in one moment you could be giving a very salesy message the next minute could be the store opening hours and the next could be the way that a colleague speaks to a a customer in a given environment so i think it would be hard to measure and i'm not aware of any brands who have uh, have done that with uh, their tone of voice and distinctive assets if you're listening and you have please do reach out because i would love to know how you did it but i do think uh, and I'll, I'll move away from the sort of formal definition of distinctive assets as uh, as Jenny's talked through and more in sort of general distinctiveness terms. I think an approach to language, a consistent approach to language can become familiar and can build brand warmth and other softer brand metrics, um, softer than mental availability would be seen to be. But I think it's, it is really hard going and I think there are some brands who have invested in, in doing that and have really made language a core part of their identity. And I hate citing the cliched examples, but that would be um, the likes of An Innocent, who really were one of the first in in my memory to to market with a grocery product talking very much like human beings. And it really worked for them. So I I think it's hard. Uh, I think also lots of brands today want to be seen as human, warm, friendly, because they want to talk like human beings to their customers. And so by default, we're almost all starting from the same platform from a tone of voice perspective. So then finding the opportunities to dial that up and down, um, I think, is is hard. But absolutely something to aspire for. But it's not when I've got top of my list in wanting to be um, the most distinctive asset for Sainsbury's in the coming months, whilst remaining incredibly important and language being a really important tool for engaging and not disengaging your customers. 
for you. Thanks for adding that last bit. You're welcome. <laughs> um, I promise he wasn't kicking me under the yeah. table. <laughs> Presumably you extrapolate that out to a whole tone of voice, a whole way of writing for a brand to be distinctive. It's just really, really difficult. Yeah, I mean, getting that consistency. I mean, the, the biggest problem I tend to have with brand and their language and communication um, with customers is often it reminds me of, you You know, when you get stuck at a party with that person who just wants to talk about themselves all the time. And then at the end of it, they go, oh, you know, I've been talking about myself. Um, now I'd like to talk about you. What do you think about me? Um, that's what often a lot of the brand communication reminds me of. So I think what we say also has to change as well as how we say it. And those two things go hand in hand with each other. Um, but I do agree with Rachel that um, being able to, um, and depending on your organisation, this will be easier or more difficult. If you are a, if you have people interacting directly with customers, as in the case of, say, something like Sainsbury's, where you've got customer service staff in there and things, that's always going to be a challenge because those people are individuals who have their own way of speaking and things like that. Um, I think it's easier sometimes when you have a lot more control over everything that's set out there about the brand um, in there, but even then still a challenging task. It's time for Listed Languager, um, where I ask a series of five questions. We've asked the same questions on all of our podcasts. Um, Rachel, we'll start with you. The first question is, what's your favourite word? Uh, can I pick a foreign word? Please do. My favourite word uh, is, and always has been, Vergangenheitsbewältigung, which means um, coming to the terms with the... Uh, the negatives of our past and it's a term that was introduced in the late 20th century and talk, talks about how the German people needed to come to terms with the atrocities of um, the two world wars and I kind of love it for two reasons firstly for for what it means and how it's just one word that talks to such a humongous social human philosophical concept and challenge and second because in that beautifully Germanic way it's actually the compound of a number of individual words all brought together in one multisyllabic word, which I, uh, as a linguist myself, appreciate. They're good at those, the Germans. Schadenfreude obviously mm -hmm. comes to mind. They're good at capturing sort of feelings, they thoughts are. in, Complex in one Complex emotions. Word. Complex yeah. emotions, that's a much better way of putting it. Um, okay, over to you, Jenny. Um, my favourite word growing up was psychosomatic. I had no idea what it meant, but I just love the way it rolled off the tongue. Um, and then I found out what it meant and went, oh, okay. But yeah, <laughs> I still liked the word psychosomatic. Rachel, what's your least favourite bit of business language? Oh, I'm sort of cringing because I feel like I probably do use a lot of business language, even though I know it's atrocious and embarrassing and cringeworthy. Um, I would have to say any bit of business language that tries to dehumanise things that are very, very personal and human so particularly around restructures and redundancy scenarios so businesses use words like streamlining or synthesizing uh, and anything that sort of turns a human being into an, an asset lots of the other ones I, I'm probably guilty of using myself demising is another one that I've heard for redundancies oh, okay I'll add that to the list of things to avoid yeah it's a strange strange way of putting it um Jenny how about you least favorite bit of business language 
I love it all because I think when things get um, when, also, when things get cliched, that's when they start to get funny and you can make fun of them. So I tend to be the one who I, I prefer satire as an approach to dealing with language that starts to get a bit um, over the top. I tend to more have fun with it rather than worry too much about um, disliking it. Um, I just if I dislike it, I tend to just laugh at it. Um, Rachel, who would you like to write like? I'm going to go for Dawn Porter. So Dawn Porter is a journalist here in the UK and she writes exactly how I imagine she would talk if I was having a glass of wine with her in the local pub. So she is clear, articulate, witty, brave, the satire in there, fearless, candid, and she manages to take very sort of complex and potentially controversial concepts and talk about them in a straightforward, human, believable and authentic way and she makes me laugh. And you, Jenny? Um, I would like a mashup, if I could, of Michael Lewis and Richard Feynman. So um, Michael Lewis, who wrote, like, uh, The Big Short, all of that sort of stuff, I love his ability to take to get you interested in things that, in hindsight, you go, I believe I would be interested in that, um, but to find them compelling enough to read a whole book on them um, or to watch a whole movie on them. Um, and Richard Feynman, because I loved his sense of humour and the way he looked at the world differently and what he did. Uh, he's the famous physicist. Um, uh, yeah, so I'd love a mashup of the two of those, if I could. How would that mashup sound? I'd be able to keep you interested in what you would think a really arcane topic and I'd be able to keep you entertained at the same time in doing that. Quite the skill. Rachel, which brand would you like to work on the language for? If not, say, of course, Sainsbury's Obviously is Sainsbury's. number one. Uh, I think any of the Virgin brands, but particularly Virgin Trains, um, partly because I spend a lot of time on a Virgin train heading up north to see my family. And they just make even the most mundane and boring of things a little bit irreverent and fun. And I think if I was a copywriter for Virgin, I just would be smiling all day long. They've got that quite famous now sign on the bottom of the toilet lids on the trains, haven't they, that said, don't, don't flush goldfish down there and things like yes, that. Yes, exactly. So it's just that thing of uh, finding little nooks and crannies where people don't expect nice writing to be and, and putting it there, which is a nice thing to do. How about you, Jenny? Um, probably the vast majority of the financial services sector because I feel like a lot of that uh, language um, I think just think could be so much more uh, it could be improved in how it speaks to people um, and how you know, just how language is incorporated in what they um, share with people. Rachel you've got form with uh, financial services is that is that a fair assessment? Yeah I think it's a fair assessment that there's definitely opportunity to improve and be more human and accessible um, for financial services. I think Nationwide are doing a really fab job at the moment um, in tying in what they stand for as a brand, as a um, as a members group, and talking much more, therefore, like one of their members in their communications. And I secretly love poetry, and they built poetry into their campaign. So kudos to Nationwide. OK, and last question. Uh, when or where do you have your best ideas? I actually think I probably have my best ideas on my commutes because it's the one bit of the day where I have a little bit of mental space and uh, I'm either in the morning surrounded by lots and lots of other commuters and squashed up like, like sardines in a can and so it allows me to escape that current reality and just be inside my own head and thinking 
on the way back at the end of a day, I guess I've got a, a day's worth of stimu stimulus and input to process and I can sort of synthesize that and hope, hope that something good comes out of it. Great. And you, Jenny? Um, I'll separate them out into little and big ideas. So I think I have the best big ideas either when I'm traveling or when I'm walking the dog. So that's when kind of the big things of, oh, I could look at this or do this or maybe this is the answer. Um, but one of my favorite techniques is when I'm doing something where I'm not quite sure what I'm doing and it's a series of steps that I have to think about each step. I, I work and cook at the same time. So I have to pause and like chop or stir or things. And it makes me think about the next step I'm going to take before I take it on the computer um, as I'm interspersed in doing the task. And I haven't burnt anything yet using that approach, <laughs> but um, it just, I find that, yeah, both of those are ways in which I kind of get ideas to do uh, of how I should be doing something. Your laptop must be covered in oil and tomato sauce and all no, those. No, I have I have that on the I have that on my dining room table and I have the kitchen. I can send you the four pan if you like, Nick. And yeah, you please can do. See. It's all Just all very sure. separate, all very all very non-contaminated. <laughs> okay, and fourth segue alert. Where did you have the idea, Jenny, for your new book? Um, it really came out of um, we'd been. Um, we have this as one of our corporate sponsors seminars, getting great feedback. We've been doing um, actual assessments for companies of uh, measuring their distinctive assets and the questions they were coming out, um, coming at me. And I was answering each question, but I realized that with each of the different clients I had, I was only answering one out of probably a hundred questions each of them had. So I had the hundred questions, but they were interspersed and I couldn't have the total conversation with any one particular person. So I thought if I put it all in a book and that, hand, that really addresses some of the key questions that people have asked, that allows me to share that knowledge with everybody who um, might be interested in it. And it's that's why it's deliberately designed to be not just a book to read, but a reference book. It's got a lot of short chapters on very specific topics so that if you, you know, have an issue of should we get a celebrity or not, there's a chapter that talks about faces as assets and the pros and cons of different approaches and things to do it. But it's very easy to just go to that section and look at that. So, yeah, um, basically through that process. And what's it called? Uh, building Distinctive Brand Assets. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you to Jenny and Rachel for their wise words. That's it for the podcast this time. You can email podcast at thewriter.com if you'd like to ask us anything or just do some sort of post-show heckle. Thanks also to Theo Broughton for writing our lovely music and for editing out all my irritating vocal tics to make me sound at least halfway articulate. Until next time, if you don't know The Writer, have a look at thewriter.com or our LinkedIn page or on Twitter at The Writer. I'm Nick Padmore and that was The Writer's Podcast. See you soon. Mm -hmm.